I enjoyed running back in school, running track. And one of my favorite things to run, though, was not just a solo race, but a relay race. Because in the relay race, you're depending on others. They're depending on you. If you don't eat right the night before, you're going to cost your team. If they don't eat right, they're going to cost you. But if you all work together and you all take care together to grow together, then you can have an amazing team that can do some amazing things. I enjoyed relay races. Today, as we dig into the sermon, what I want us to see is that sanctification, that is growing in Christ-likeness, is a team sport. It's not an individual sport. We tend to think individually when we talk about sanctification. I'm growing to be more like Christ. And yes, you might be, but you don't do that on your own. You're running your leg in a team sport, a relay race. And that is what it means to grow together. So we're growing together. And that's been the theme. And I was hoping that we were going to have a dedication service August 20th in the new sanctuary. And God said no. And that's okay, because that gives us more time to grow in preparation of that. September 10th is when we're planning to dedicate the new sanctuary. So be looking forward to that for this opportunity as we grow together to prepare to dedicate the new sanctuary. I have a video that I want us to start with. So if we could go to the next slide for this video.
so as we are growing together, growing together, we are seeking that conclusion, salvation. And then after salvation, we are seeking sanctification. You see, salvation is the most important decision anyone will ever make in their life. The decision to follow Jesus as their savior, the decision to put their complete faith that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and that that death is sufficient for salvation. That process, that decision has a name and it's a theological term. The term is justification. So as we seek to grow together, the first thing that we need to know is that justification implies sanctification. Justification, being right with Jesus, being right with God by accepting that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, implies sanctification. Sanctification is the fancy theological term for growing to be more like Christ. So I've thrown in some theology for you here just because sometimes it's good to know some of these words because people might use them. Justification is the action or what takes place when we accept Jesus as our Savior, we become justified. That means it's a legal term. We are right with God because we accept Jesus as our Savior. Sanctification comes after justification as we grow. And the reason I say justification implies sanctification is because every single person who has been born again should be growing. This shouldn't be a surprise. You see, I don't have any kids. Emily and I don't have any kids. However, we have lots of nieces and nephews. And one of the fun things with nieces and nephews is for people to tell us, your niece is in the 78th percentile. What do they mean when they say that? They mean that they are growing. They are doing the things that are normal for kids to do, which is to grow. Growth is a normal outcome of new birth. Justification implies sanctification. So I want us to start with Romans 6.14. In your Bibles, if you will turn, we're going to be kind of all over the place, but if you'll join me in Romans chapter 6 to start with, I want to read to you Romans 6, verse 14. It says, For sin shall no longer be your master, because you are not under the law, but under grace. Sin shall no longer be your master. You are not under the law. You are under grace. In your bulletin, on the back of your bulletin, I've got more bullet points than what I put on the slides. But one of the bullet points that I put on there is don't be an evangelical antinomian. And you might think, what in the world does that mean? So I'm going to tell you. Antinomian is a term that Martin Luther actually coined uh, back in 1537 or so. After Martin Luther led the Protestant Reformation, there was an interesting problem that came up. You see, we believe that you are saved by grace. That it is not of yourself, but it is a gift of God. That it's not of works. There's nothing you can do to earn your way into heaven. And so some people came up with an, an interesting thought. They said, okay, if I'm saved by grace, it's not of works. There's nothing I can do that will enter me into heaven. All I need to do is accept Jesus as my savior and then I'm guaranteed heaven. Great, let me do that and get back to the party. And that was what Martin Luther called antinomianism. He said, that doesn't make sense. See, Romans 6.14 says that 
If sin no longer has dominion over you, if you've been saved, then sin no longer has dominion. And so you shouldn't have the desire because sin isn't reigning over you. You should reject that because Jesus is your new master. Really what's going on here in Romans 6 in the antinomian movement is a misunderstanding of the idea of freedom. When we accept Jesus as our Savior, we are freed from sin. But we mistake the word freedom all the time. You see, we, we set freedom out there by itself. We say freedom. The word freedom by itself doesn't actually make a lot of sense. The word freedom by itself has another word, chaos. No, freedom, you are always freed from something to something else. Think about it for a second. Independence Day. Free from paying taxes to a king to self-govern. Your driver's license. Free from having to follow your parents' driving schedule. You still have to follow your own schedule. Retirement. Free from having the requirement to be at work from 9 to 5 every day. But you still have to do things, right? You still have to get up, prepare a meal. Freedom by itself is chaos. You're always free from something to something else. Salvation is freedom from sin to Christ, to your master. When we are justified, we should begin to grow. I said, don't be an evangelical antinomian. And the reason I say that is because there are a lot of evangelical antinomians out there. Let me give you some statistics. Do you know that 13% of those who attend church regularly report regularly also engaging in binge drinking? Freedom. No, that's chaos. 68% of Christian men regularly view pornography. Freedom? No, chaos. Those are some of the big numbers. Here's some statistics, though, that uh, I didn't actually have stats for, but instead I just wanted to ask you. How often do you speed? Always. <laughs> how, how often have you lied on your taxes? Do you do devotions daily? Do you pray every day outside of meals? We are guilty of being evangelical antinomians, of believing that I've accepted Jesus as my Savior, and so the work is done. Yes, you might be forgiven from all your sins. When you accept Jesus as your Savior, you are forgiven. But that doesn't mean that the journey is done. It doesn't mean that we aren't supposed to continue to grow. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter 1. 1 Peter 1, and we're going to look at verses 13 through 16. And I encourage you to find it just so you can make sure that I am not telling you something that's not true. This is what it really says. 1 Peter chapter 1 says, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be bought to you when Jesus Christ revealed at his coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. 
We are to make holiness a priority. Why? Because the Jesus who saved us from our sin is himself holy. We are to grow in sanctification. Peter gave us five points in that passage, five ways, five steps. The first thing that he says is prepare your minds for action. Holiness does not happen by accident. Sanctification does not happen by accident. You're not going to wake up, ignore God completely, and at the end of the day say, boy, I sure did a good job of being holy. It's not going to happen by accident. You have to prepare your mind for it. You have to be sober. The idea there is self-control. If you just let everything go, if you let chaos rule, you're going to miss it. I love the third thing that Peter says. Set your hope in what is to come. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But set your hope in what is to come. Do not conform to the evil desires of your pre-salvation life. Push back against your evil desires. And the ultimate result is to be holy, to be set apart for God. I told you the third one I liked, which is to set your hope in that which is to come. And to that, I want you to turn to 1 John 3, 1 through 3. We are to live in anticipation of perfective sanctification, the point where God does make us entirely free from sin. We're to look forward to this point. John, in 1 John 3, says, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that this is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. We anticipate the time where we see Jesus as he is. I want you to think back to when you were a child, or if you are a child, think about what you think about now, and you were thinking about what job you wanted to do when you grow up. What did you do? Did you pretend to be doing that job? I think the answer is yes. I know the Nettleton girls, some of them want to be teachers, and I've often asked what they're going to do. We're going to play school when we get home. Okay. (laughs) You don't be... I I will speak from personal experience. You don't become a pilot by one day getting in an airplane. No, you think about it and you prepare for it. You look forward to what it is that you're going to be and you prepare to be that. And we are told that one day we will see Christ as he is. I think when we see Christ as he is, we're going to see how disgusting our sin is. And we're going to say never again. Never again will I do anything like that. Never again will I touch that. But even now today, we should look and say, one day I will be free from the burden of sin. Free to serve Christ at my utmost capacity. And therefore, I should strive for that today. So my action step. I gave you some hard statistics about problems that evangelicals have, that Christians have. Will you determine today to make sanctification a priority by preparing your mind. That's the first step. Determine to do it by committing to be sober. That's self-control, to be under control, 
by looking forward to, by setting your hope on what is to come, by refusing to conform to evil, will you determine to be holy for your Savior? That's what it means that justification implies sanctification. We should be taking these steps regularly, aiming to be as like Christ as we can be. The second thing I want to tell you, as we grow together, because this is what we need to be doing is growing together, the second thing I want to tell you is that sanctification is not self-help. Sanctification is not a self-help program. Don't drink the self-help Kool-Aid. It's not worth it. Go back to Romans 6, and we'll be in Romans 6 now for a little while. Romans 6, starting in verse 4, says, We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Don't drink the self-help Kool-Aid. In college, in undergraduate, uh, one of my classes was on aviation careers, and we read books like The Economics of Aviation, Aviation Job Interviews, a a variety of books that was really aimed to prepare us for an airline job interview. But one of the books we had to read was a self-help book. And it was all about how my inner self was so great. And I'm reading this thinking, that's not what it says here. (laughs) No, don't drink the self-help Kool-Aid. Your inner self, your pre-salvation self is not good. No. The only good that you have comes from Christ. It's not yourself. It is Christ. As a culture, we're addicted to the idea of self-help. It's a $2.48 billion a year industry in self-help. That's a huge, huge amount of money that people spend on self-help. But here's here's the part that's worse. 80% of the self-help customers are repeat customers because it didn't work the first time. They're going to try it again. Okay, that is called addiction, by the way, when when 80 percent of the people go back to it because it's not strong enough anymore for them. That's an addiction. Two point four eight billion dollars a year spent so that people can feel better about themselves when the reality is. The only solution, according to Romans chapter six. Is to put to death the old self to be buried with him through the baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It's only Christ's life that is going to sanctify us. Continuing on in Romans 6, Romans 6 verse 11 says, in the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. The idea here is do the math. 
added up. Actually, the Greek word here for count yourselves is uh, the word for reckon or to calculate. It comes up in medical texts. So if you look at like uh, Hippocrates' writings, uh, it comes up where he says to reckon the number of days some symptoms started. And he uses the same word here for counting yourselves dead. Reckon yourselves. Look at your symptoms. Sin. Lack of joy. Longing for something more. Reckon those symptoms. Do the math and see that you were dead in sin. But after salvation, you're alive to God. Only our life in Jesus Christ counts for anything. So we shouldn't seek self-help. We should seek Christ's pouring into us. Finally, what I want to tell you is sanctification. You participate in it. You don't get to do it yourself. It's actually the opposite of self-help because you're not going to help yourself at all. You're rather a participant as the Holy Spirit leads the work. Romans 6, 13 and 14. We've been in Romans 6 a little bit here, but let's read this text for just a minute. Romans 6, starting in verse 13, says, Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been bought, brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to him as an instrument of righteousness. For sin shall no longer be your master because you are not under the law, but under grace. The idea here is you offer yourself to God for him to use. Sanctification is not self-help because you can't do it. It's the Holy Spirit working in you as you offer yourself to God. And he works to make you more and more like Christ. If you want a, a text to go with that, we can turn to Galatians 5, verses 16 and 18. Galatians 5, verses 16 and 18 is going to accompany us here. It says, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. We are to seek to be led by the Holy Spirit of God. Looking more like Christ happens not when you strive. It happens when you turn yourself over to the Holy Spirit. I told you earlier when we were reading uh, 1 Peter that there's this idea of prepare your minds. So how do you prepare your mind? It starts by turning yourself over in prayer to the Holy Spirit to be used by God as an instrument for righteousness, to walk in the Spirit. Participate in your sanctification. Don't try to lead it yourself. The command to walk by the Spirit implies that we are participating as he works. It says you might not get to do what you want to do. If there are times where you don't get to do what you want to do, that's actually a good thing. That's the Holy Spirit working on you. Growth spurt as they wiggle and squirm and try to adjust how they're sitting because they're uncomfortable and they don't know how to express it. 
They're growing. Growth is not always comfortable. If you exercise and you push yourself, you will hurt the next day. I call it the achy goodness because it means I did something. That's how we should be spiritually, where we know that we did something. We know that we are pushing forward because it hurts a little bit, because it aches a little bit as God tests us and stretches us. So my action step. Will you join with the Holy Spirit as a participant in your sanctification, turning yourself over to him, preparing your mind daily by going to him in prayer and saying, God, I can't do this on my own. I shouldn't do this on my own. Will you lead me in sanctification? Will you allow me to walk with you so that I grow? And it might hurt, but that's okay because it will be worth it. So we've talked about sanctification a lot. I've kind of hammered this in. Now I want to throw in the together part. And what I want to say is that sanctification occurs as part of the body. This is the part where it gets hard because a lot of times we think about growing in Christ-likeness and we think, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to grow to be more like Christ. And here's what I want to tell you. If it's going to be all about you, you're not going to do it. Sanctification occurs as part of a body of believers. It has to be done in the context of church, with the support of church. Sanctification is a team sport. I'll get to some scripture here in a minute. Before I get to scripture, I want to uh, give you sort of a, a picture. Chemistry requires a controlled environment. So my brothers and I, we're all two years apart, and so we did a lot together. And I think probably one of the worst times in, for my mom was that point where at least half of us had had a chemistry class. <laughs> because we figured out some cool things. One of the things that we figured out was we actually figured out, uh, after we had been through some chemistry, how to isolate hydrogen gas. It, don't worry, I'm not going to tell your kids how to do that today. Okay? But we figured out ourselves how to isolate hydrogen gas. And so we were in the backyard, and we had our machine going that we had built and uh, started getting some good hydrogen gas out. And then we got a really good idea. We went and got the bubble mix from the garage from like when we were really young kids. And we started building hydrogen bubbles. And then we got matches, and it was a lot of fun. <laughs> but the key to it was that it had to occur in a controlled environment. We needed to be in control or things could get out of hand really fast. You see, chemical reactions take place under control or things go bad with a catalyst. Catalyst is something that makes the chemical reaction happen without itself undergoing a change. The Holy Spirit is our catalyst. The Holy Spirit is the one that leads us to change. He is the one that grows us in our sanctification. But the controlled environment, the safe place in which this change occurs, is right here in the church. We need to grow together so that our growth is done in God's way. The Holy Spirit is the catalyst. The local church is the beaker. Turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. 
Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25, really address this aspect, this key aspect of growth. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Growth occurs in the context of the local church. Individual members spur each other onward. The spurring is to love and good works and encouragement for each other to grow. There can be a serious temptation for what I would call Lone Ranger Christianity. I'm going to do it myself, or I'm going to do it with me and a couple of buddies. That's not God's model. Verse 25 really addresses that. It says, don't give up meeting together. Don't ever let the meeting together be the thing that you give up, because that is where growth occurs. That is the controlled environment in which the catalyst works and the growth occurs in a safe way. I wanted to talk just briefly about one of the reasons. There's lots of reasons, I think, why God established the local church as the place where growth occurs. But I do want to talk about one, and that comes in 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. Under shepherds, care and protect. Let's look at the verses. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 5. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are younger, submit yourselves to your elders. All of you clothe yourself with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Within the local church, there is a specific job that is given to the pastors, and that is to care for and protect. An important part of my job, a really cool part of my job, is to live in relationship with other people. And I love that part of my job. Uh, Absolutely love it. A scary part of my job is to protect, is to ensure that false doctrine doesn't come in to the church, to ensure that people are growing in a healthy way. The passage tells us that the pastor is responsible for feeding the flock. Preaching is a primary component of a pastor's job. Pastor is responsible for being an example to the flock. I am a sinner. I will tell you that readily. But my prayer is that I can boldly proclaim, as Paul complained, proclaimed, follow me as I follow Christ. Finally, the pastor, though, has a responsibility to watch over the flock. Part of the reason sanctification occurs within the body is because the pastors of a church care for and watch over and ensure 
that our sanctification isn't self-help. Ensure that our sanctification is Christ-likeness and not like something else in the world. But it's not just pastors who have a role in this in the body. It is also members. Members of the local church practice Christ-likeness within the local church. We're going to go back to Romans for our last passage of the day. Romans 12. Romans 12, verses 9 through 13. says, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. This passage struck me as I was reading this. Because everything in here sure feels to me like this is Christ-likeness. Sincere love, hating evil, clinging to good. If I practiced those things, I would be a long ways in my journey towards Christ-likeness. Verse 11, never to be lacking in zeal, but keeping my spiritual fervor in serving the Lord. Being joyful, being hopeful, being patient in affliction, being faithful in prayer. Again, all of those things, if I practiced those well, I would be well on my way towards looking a lot like Christ. But look at the context. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. The picture here between be devoted to one another in verse 10 and share with the Lord's people who are in need, the picture here is that this takes place in the context of the church, of being with other believers who you can share as you love sincerely, as you cling to what is good, as you're joyful, as you hope. The point here is Christ-likeness, I think, best occurs in the context of the church. And then we take it outside the church and others look at us and say, what is so different about them? I want that. And we say, if you want that, come with me. Because here's where I learned it. Christ-likeness, sanctification, occurs as part of the body. So my action step. Will you commit to sanctification within the body? Commit to growing in the church, to using the church as your place of growth, not being a Lone Ranger Christian, but to growing within the body of believers. Our theme for our construction project is together we grow. And we are growing together. But I want you to realize something. We're about to be done with the construction project, but we're not done growing together. We're about to move in and dedicate that. September 10th, it's coming. But we're not done growing together. Will you commit to for the next 30 years? or longer, growing together as part of the body. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that your model for growth is your church. I thank you that you have not asked us to do this on our own. You've not asked us to go and be lone rangers. You've not left us without the Holy Spirit to guide us. I pray 
that as a church, we would grow together. I pray that if there's any who haven't accepted Jesus as their savior, that you would reveal yourself to them, that they would turn to you and accept that saving grace that brings them justification. Father, I think of uh, our three students who accepted Jesus at camp. Justification implies sanctification. It is now time for them to grow, to be more like Christ. I pray that they would, that they would actively participate with the Holy Spirit. Father, as a church, help us to grow together for decades to come. In Jesus' name, amen.